Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be talking to you this morning. Um, we just got done recording an episode where we talked about what the LDS doubter looks like. We talked about ex-Mormon Reddit and its growth. Um, I should, I should probably say here to tie into that, that Mormon Discussions podcast has gone up to over, uh, 40,000 unique ISP downloads a month, which is incredible growth. And, and so when you combine that with, uh, the growth that's happening in other, uh, public arenas where the deeper Mormonism is being discussed uh, at length, then you begin to grasp just how fast the segment is growing. People are opening their eyes. And kind of as a pushback to this, you saw a couple of articles come out recently. Now I'm recording this on December 10th. So you're, 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 you may not hear this for a few months. And, and so I want to be clear, just recently, a few weeks back, both the Deseret News as well as I believe LDS Living Magazine, both published articles. Uh, LDS Living published the the eight ways to make sure you don't fall into the doubt trap and fall away from the church. And then Deseret News, like two days later, has the um, speaks about essentially these folks, uh, Mormons who are well known. Uh, I believe Robert Millet was one of them who go out and give this this presentation on on faithfulness. And this lady makes the comment that uh, Mormons who tend to stay in the church tend to have strength of character. And, and those two articles to me just blew my mind. They were just so uh, inaccurate and, and so defensive of in-group dynamics. They, they were just blatantly not speaking to the truth of why dedicated members of the church are falling away right now. And... And so we did this episode where we talked about what does the doubter look like in terms of generally. And we went into their education, their, uh, their financial socioeconomic status. Uh, we went into the ages. We went into whether they attend or not. And so this is kind of a follow up to that. This is, this is kind of a promised follow up to that where we would go into some of these individual stories and uh, I would recommend that everybody go back and listen to that first episode. Um, it is titled, Who is the Doubter? It's probably going to find itself somewhere around episode number 250-ish uh, by the time it comes out. Maybe maybe high 240s, low 250s. Uh, so look for that episode and listen to it first. Uh, so today what I wanted to do is I wanted to share a second document. On that first episode, there is a PDF attached that that shows graphs and pie charts and everything else for, for the data that we shared. This data was collected 
Um, and you'll see the numbers of people who were essentially uh, surveyed or gave answers to the questions. But also this data was presented to LDS church leadership. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. They are aware of this data. And, and I think any shift you've seen in the last five years, because this study was done three to five years ago, any, any stuff you're seeing in the last three to five years that seems significantly different than what they were doing before that, I think in some ways can be connected, at least in part, to the data that they are now aware of. And, and so what we wanted to do was essentially share some of these, these folks and their stories. And there will also be a PDF shared with these episodes. I, I anticipate there being more than one, uh, just because there are so many stories here and I want to share several of them. And, and I think they're important. Um, but the document will be there and all the stories will be shared. In these stories, it tells you, uh, you know, anonymous, but the gender. So it, it doesn't tell you the name, but it gives you a gender, male or female. Tells you the age range they're in, gives you the income level, education level, uh, member type, whether they're a convert, lifelong member, inactive most of their life and came back. Gives you a little bit of that story. Uh, tells you what some of their uh, perspectives were or some of their behaviors were prior to their crisis and the callings that they held up until their faith crisis occurred. And, and again, I want to contrast this with the two articles, which I will link to this episode as well, found in LDS Living and on the Deseret News, that, that I just think were atrocious and completely missed the mark, uh, and kind of contrast these stories with that. And so this first one is an anonymous female. She's age 25 to 34, somewhere in that bracket. She makes over $200,000 a year. She's a college graduate. She is a lifelong member. She is a full tithe payer. Um... She was a, she, I shouldn't say that. Prior to a crisis, she was a full tithe payer. She, she was a regular attender at sacrament meeting. She, um, held a temple recommend. Uh, she adhered to the word of wisdom. She served in a relief society presidency, a Sunday school teacher, a primary teacher, and in the nursery. And, and here's her story. She says, I grew up as my mother and father's spiritual child. All those who knew me well, would say my number one character trait was that I was spiritual and extremely sincere in my devotion to the Savior and His church. I was the daughter that would strengthen the testimonies of my siblings by bearing it frequently. I read my scriptures and wrote in my journal daily. I was constantly praying to my Heavenly Father. I was on the seminary council and worked very hard to strengthen the testimonies of all those around me. I went to BYU, and there my spirituality and testimony increased. I went to the Jerusalem Center and had great spiritual experiences. I was nothing but pure dedication to my testimony of the gospel. Neither I nor anyone in my family would have ever believed I could lose my testimony. In fact, my sister said she would have believed pigs would fly before I could lose my testimony. That is why it is so bizarre that I am sitting here in that exact situation. I have lost my faith in Mormonism. Writing that statement actually brings tears to my eyes. I never thought that the little girl who 25 years ago was more excited than she had ever been in her life because she was getting baptized would ever be in a position such as this. But looking back with my eyes wide open, I now see that it was happening all along. I just ignored my sense of reality to maintain faith. I was married in the temple to a very loving, good man, who was considered by many to have a huge potential in the church. He was very devoted, 
successful missionary. He loved the people in his mission and was one of the best at bringing people to the gospel. Early in our marriage, he stayed, he started asking questions about the church and God. There were things on his mission that he found disturbing that made him want more answers. The more he read and tried to find answers to those questions, the more he struggled in his testimony. All he was trying to do was strengthen his testimony. But the more he searched for the answers, the more his testimony crumbled. Soon, he became quite disaffected and wanted to take a break from church. I was still completely believing and devastated by this. I decided to give him his space, knowing that he would eventually figure out the truth and return to complete activity and be even more devout than he had ever been. I made huge sacrifices and took our three children to church each week. Each week, He would join us sometimes, but most of the time it was a very painful struggle for him. But I was willing to do this for the rest of my life if I had to. I was going to single-handedly keep our little family in the church. Well, then something happened. My brother-in-law decided he wanted to strengthen his testimony of Joseph Smith. He began reading church-sanctioned books and looking into church history. He kept digging and digging for answers. By the end of it, he told my sister he no longer believed. She was furious and threatened separation, but her husband settled her down and found a story about a woman that stayed with her husband despite his loss of faith. She listened to the story, then decided I could benefit from it too. To make a long story short, my sister and I and our husbands have now all looked into the church and after almost a year of investigation have come to the conclusion that the church was never what it seemed to be. Joseph was not the prophet, and the Book of Mormon has no real evidence proving its its historical authenticity. Our lives have all been changed in good and bad ways because of this truth. The most painful thing is our believing family members and friends don't understand, so we have faced a lot of sadness. The best thing is we have a lot more love for all people, because we no longer feel we are more blessed than they are. And so that concludes this lady, uh, her story. And, and what strikes me is one, she's not a dummy. She's a, she's a very intelligent person. She's educated. Um, she was very dedicated to the church. Th- these people are not people with one foot in and one foot out. These are folks who are both feet in. And again, same thing I said in that, that, that initial episode is that we have to parse these out into at least two groups. And I'm only speaking of the second group. The first group are folks who, you know, they join the church as converts and within two weeks they're inactive. They're teenagers who were really never dedicated to the church and the moment they're out from underneath their parents' wing, they're gone. Uh, I'm speaking about folks who go through a life of in and out activity and just really don't see the church as, as essential for them or just aren't extremely dedicated to it. Take that group, and, and I want to totally validate and respect who they are too, but we're just not speaking to them. Set those folks off to the side. The reality is we're talking about this second group, and again, there could be more than two groups, but let's parse them into two. This second group are folks who were both feet in, and and I don't think the church is probably ultimately concerned with with the undedicated people leaving and and not being not being participants, but the church better darn well be concerned about its membership that is extremely dedicated, both feet in, totally enjoying the church to the nth degree in terms of just doing all the things that are asked of of them, um, participating in scripture study, home teaching, paying tithing, adhering to the word of wisdom, going to the temple. These folks are dedicated members of the church, and 
And again, it's not that it isn't working for them. They're having spiritual experiences. They are having um, positive experiences within the gospel. And it's not until they discover the full data that all that comes crashing down. The the next one is an anonymous male, uh, ages 35 to 50. Uh, he makes between 50,000 and 100,000. He's got some college education. He's a lifelong member. Uh, prior to his faith crisis, he was a full tithe payer, regular attendance at sacrament meeting, temple recommend holder, and he adhered to the word of wisdom. Callings he had served. He was a full-time missionary. He served in the Sunday school. Uh, he was a primary teacher. He served as a gospel doctrine teacher. He sang in the choir. He was in the Young Men's Presidency, the Elders Quorum Presidency, and he served as an Elders Quorum President. Here's his story. He says, I was always active and a firm believer. Some items I recognized were not that clear or understandable to me, i.e. as a young 19-year-old sitting through my first endowment experience with a good friend as my escort, I questioned the penalties, but was assured by others doing the same thing and later other members' reassurance that this was all part of the process. I served a full-time mission and watched how the end result was more important than the means of achieving the baptism. Although obedience and paying the price were taught at Zone Conference, regular actions of leaders and mission president were far different. I surmised it's just people using their agency, some for good and others struggling. I had to reflect in my own life. I had raised four children, served in numerous callings, many very demanding. I prayed continually, attending, attended the temple, paid a full tithing, but never felt the blessings spoken of or promised. It became so difficult that anything that wasn't a disaster or extremely bad was looked at as a good thing in life. I watched my spouse use lessons from Relief Society and conference talks to be a tool to justify poor decisions or reasons for not finding work, when at several points in a 26-year marriage, it was desperately needed. I kept looking for the answers and the blessings promised. I clearly recall life-changing decisions that I needed answers to, making a drive several hours round trip to the temple to meditate in the celestial room, praying and having fasted, yet still nothing. I'd then self-flog, wondering what I hadn't purged for that must have obviously been denying me even the simplest of answers to my prayers. It wasn't until I started hearing things mentioned about Joseph Smith where I thought, wow, the antis can really embellish on polygamy stories. I heard that Joseph Smith had married the wives of other men, and I thought, this is really ludicrous. I then began to research this. When I could validate it, I asked myself about other related matters pertaining to our history. I had heard of pedophilia, Joseph marrying a 14-year-old while he was in his late 30s. This couldn't be true of a prophet of the Lord. Imagine if President Monson or any of the current leaders would have tried this, or even a legal 18-year-old bride. This would be a disgrace. But as I checked it out, sure enough, it was true. I began to see the money I have paid in tithing and fast offerings, and then seeing how the church had invested in real estate and businesses, and as honest as we are asked to be when giving an account for this tithing, the brethren feel zero obligation to follow their own advice. The more I dug, the more clear it had become that this church had no more connection or face-to-face -face with the Lord than any other church or congregation. 
Our foundation is sure to crumble as it's built on the vision and imagination or an individual that may have meant well, but having narcissistic desire for power built. For power, build a wonderful tool for creating wealth, adulation, and glory unto himself. I can't see it for anything more than this. It's a depressing state to be in, and the cost of exiting is great. Someone LDS can announce their dissatisfaction with the church and a desire to leave, but chances are the price will be your marriage. I asked a dear friend and former co-worker if she announced to her husband that she no longer wanted to attend the Methodist church, if her very active husband would divorce her. She said, heavens no, he loves me and wouldn't choose a church over his marriage and family. Yet, in our church, it's quite the opposite. I'd love to see the leaders espouse the truth, and they themselves come clean and be set free, so to speak. Let the church purge itself and reform based on reality and not a 180-year-old fantasy. And so again, you have a guy who's very dedicated. He's all in. He is. He's going to the temple when when he's hitting these low moments and he's looking for answers from God. He's checking all the boxes. He's he's obedient. He's striving. He's he's trying. And yet, when he discovers information that runs counter to the narrative that he had been taught, it all falls apart. Let's read uh, a couple of more, and and we'll just we'll just do this from time to time. We'll just share an episode where we read four or five of these and and give people a feel for this. And, and again, I would encourage people to read all of these stories. Like, if, if you want to know why people are leaving, like, read these. If you'd like to label people as lazy or sinful, read them. Ask yourself, are these people just lazy or sinful? The next one is a uh, an anonymous female. Between the ages of 25 to 34, she's making 50 grand to 100 grand, somewhere in there. She's a college, college graduate. She's a lifelong member Prior to her crisis, she was a full tithe payer, regular attendance at sacrament service, temple recommend holder, and adherence to the word of wisdom. And uh, callings that she held, she was in the Young Women's Presidency, Relief Society Presidency, Sunday School Teacher, Nursery, Gospel Doctrine Teacher. She says, I still consider myself an active member as I have been my whole life. I believe deeply in God, in my Savior, but I have lost faith in the church as an institution my concerns begin during Prop 8 in California. I have always felt, quote, pro-gay, unquote. And my faith was really shaken once my aunt passed away. I questioned the healing power of the priesthood. If anyone had the faith to be healed, it was her. And if there was anyone who had enough faith to heal, it would have been my family. This was very difficult for me to reconcile. My husband and I are able to talk openly and agree on a lot of the concerns we have. However, I have not spoken with other members of my family because I know that any doubt I expressed would be devastating to them, specifically to my mom. This past year, I felt as though the more that I learn, the less I really know or thought I knew. I am still very much in the middle of this journey, trying to navigate my deep personal and social desire to stay in the church with the historical inconsistencies and lack of answers I am able to find within the church. I want so badly for there to be a safe place within the church where I can go to address concerns and to find answers. It's difficult for me personally to know who and what sources I can trust 
I wish I could express concerns to other members of the church without people automatically assuming I'm going inactive, sinning, being misled by the devil, reading anti-Mormon literature, etc. I love the church I was raised in. I want to make it work for me as I move forward in my future. And that's the end of that one. So, so this lady is in right in the middle of this transition and, and she's, as I think many of us can feel, there's this social wanting to make it work. There's this social desire, uh, to stay in the church and, and to, and to find ways to make it work. But again, there's no safe space. And she points this out, like the church has designed itself in a way that allows no safe space to ask the tough questions or to explore them. And, and for good reason, right? Because the moment a group of people go down this road, it's a rabbit hole. You keep going and you have to completely reconstruct everything. And so the church is, as much as I would love and, and so much hope that the church could create a safe space where it would just say, look, truth is truth. Mormonism is truth. Let's lay it on the table. Let's let people talk about it. And wherever we as a people are led, so be it. Like that would be what, if Mormonism really valued truth, that's what it would do. But the reality is there's so much risk in doing that because you don't get to control the narrative anymore. And, and whether it's, it's the church directly or any of its ardent defenders, there's no conversation those folks want to have in an arena where they don't control the narrative. And, and so this individual, this, this lady between ages 25 and 34, I mean, you can just sense like how bad she wants it to work. And, and yet she realizes that the history, the, and the social issues are, are just completely on the other side of where she needs them to be for her to do so. And so she's still working her way through it. We'll do this last one. This is a, uh, anonymous male between the ages of 50 and 64. He makes between 150,000 and 200,000. He's a college graduate, a lifelong member. Prior to his crisis, he was a full tithe payer, regular attendance at sacrament service, temple recommend holder, adherence to the word of wisdom uh, was kept. His callings, he was a full-time missionary, seminary teacher, Sunday school teacher, uh, served in the nursery, choir, music uh, callings, young men's presidency, young men's president, ward mission leader, elders quorum president, elders quorum uh, presidency. A financial membership clerk, stake auxiliary calling, and a counselor in a bishopric. He says, I remember testifying to my brother of many th things gospel-related. My testimony was an attempt to strengthen him. I told him that I felt there was nothing that could take me from my faith and testimony in the gospel. Within three months of trying to answer his concerns and studying documents and church history, I concluded that his concerns were legitimate and that I had been very naive in my belief and faith in the church. I continue to attend and serve in callings. I keep my understanding to myself, struggling in how I should proceed. It is getting harder to be involved. My wife knows what I have discovered and is in agreement with me. It has been very difficult for us to find out the many problems and the dishonesty of our highest leaders, who certainly know these things, but continue to play us for the fools. I love my many friends who I have served throughout my life and hate to think of them struggling as I have. I know the leadership will never come clean on this. It would hurt so many. However, I wish they would. It is the right thing to do. So that one was pretty short. Uh, but again, I mean, full in, 
has a brother who's lost his faith. He tries to help his brother sort this out and uh, felt like his testimony was stalwart and then starts diving into this these historical issues, feels betrayed and lied to. Luckily, his wife is on the same page as him. Um, and, and he knows that like the church coming clean would, will hurt. But as I also agree with him, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Um, and so there's four stories. Now there's about two, one to two stories on a page. Some of them are short. So they'll put two on a page. Some of them are longer. They'll take up a whole page, but there has got to be, you know, at least, um, somewhere around a hundred of these stories. And, and I, I think anybody, whether you're in the middle of this transition and you just want to like feel what other people are feeling and think about what other people are thinking about to kind of reconcile your own, your own place on this path, or whether you're a loved one who, who's trying to figure out why your spouse has lost their faith or trying to figure out why your, your, you know, if you're a church leader, why your member has lost their faith. Or if you're trying to figure out why your friend or your son or your parent has lost their faith, like go through and read a hundred of these, read them. And, and what you'll come away with in every single one of these is that these folks were dedicated. Some of them served in really high callings. And, and I simply would suggest that every, uh, everyone who comes across this at least read a handful of them. I, I shared this with my bishop. And he read several of these. Um, I actually shared them with my stake president and my bishop. My bishop let me know that he read several of these. And he knows that people are out there hurting. And he, he's beginning to have kind of an openness to want to to kind of have a conversation about these things. Um, I think we all have to recognize that we live a very sheltered, protected, simple, uh, simplified, uh, whitewashed narrative in the three-hour block. And, and we believe like our, our foundation of our testimony is based on like, I know these things are true, but the reality is the story that's real, that's out there is, is a thousand times bigger than the little story we know. And once we know that story that is a thousand times bigger, it literally changes everything. So hopefully we'll take on a few more of these stories the next time. But again, I'll, I'll leave all these links up. It's my prayer that we understand these people and that we don't label them with simple labels that's, that just don't work. That we get to understand and get to know those who are having a hard time and try to understand why they are having a hard time. And, and if we can open ourselves up to empathizing with these folks and understanding the validity of why they're hurting and why they've lost faith and not try to paint them as something less than us so that we can s- cling to our simplified testimony and say, yeah, but I'm better than them. So that's why I'm not letting go of this. Like we're just human beings having a human experience. And that human experience involves learning new information. And that new information will at times contradict the stories others have told us and that we've told ourselves. And to be open to the adjustments needed when that happens. Lastly, may I just say that Mormonism is truth. Joseph Smith taught that Mormonism is truth. Come where it may, whatever corner of the earth it's on, we wrap our arms around it and we bring it in. Hence, we need not fear new but true information. We ought to be truth seekers. That's my prayer that each of us will be, that we will seek after truth, that we'll be open to changing our paradigms and laying the information on the table and making the most honest, transparent decisions based on that information. 
May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Taking out my issues never here